Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Acts. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. And as we noted in our last session, things have significantly shifted by the time we get to this point in the letter. The first half of Acts, chapters 1 through 12, focuses primarily on Peter and the Jerusalem church and the ministry around Jerusalem and connected with Jerusalem. By this point, Peter is, as far as we can tell, out of Jerusalem for much of the time. Chapter 12 tells us how he went to another place. And it's likely that the other apostles are as well. We know James the apostle is now dead. And the other apostles, presumably, like Peter, have been forced out. They're carrying on mission in other places as well. And the church of Jerusalem is now in the hands of elders. And so that shift has happened. And in the narrative or the story of Acts, then this marks a significant shift. Paul has been serving Jesus for a little over a decade. And at this point, the focus of the book of Acts will now be on Paul and making disciples throughout the greater Roman Empire. We've seen, if you recall, Acts chapter 1, 8, that geographical sort of breakdown of the, the book of Acts. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, we, we've we seen how the apostles have been witnesses in Jerusalem, primarily chapters 1 through 6, maybe up through 7. We've seen how they've been witnesses in Judea and Samaria, chapters 7 through 12. And now we're ready for the ends of the earth. And so the whole second half of the book of Acts is going to focus primarily on Paul and uh, his ministry and the connections with Jerusalem will be how Paul's connected with Jerusalem and how he comes back and they wrestle with the Jerusalem church about some issues or they bring an offering to the church at Jerusalem. And so we are now focused on Paul taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so after delivering the money to the elders in Jerusalem, as we saw at the end of Acts chapter 12, Barnabas and Saul returned to Antioch. And sometime later, after returning to Antioch, here's what happened. Acts chapter 13, verse 1 says, Now there were prophets and teachers at Antioch in the church that was there. And he's going to list those off. But just a couple notes before we do that. First, Antioch. We mentioned Antioch in Acts chapter 11. Said we'd mention a little bit more about it here in chapter 13. And what we need to know is Antioch is one of the top five cities in the Roman world. This is not a small town. This is a major and influential city in the Roman Empire. Population estimates put it at around 300,000 or so. So large city, a very cosmopolitan and international city, a city filled with all sorts of pagan temples and pagan religion, a city filled with all sorts of Greek and Roman culture, gymnasiums and bathhouses and theaters and um, small theaters for music festivals and large theaters for plays and dramas, right? Like this is a major city. In fact, the city was such a major city that its harbor town, which we'll see here in this story, Seleucia, was well known uh, among sort of social elites and celebrities in the empire who wanted to travel to Seleucia and even to Antioch to enjoy uh, the kind of the as a tourist attraction, enjoy the city because it was such a major city. And so we're in this city 
in Antioch. The church there has been now growing there for several years, and we noted in Acts chapter 11 that it's this this mixed church of uh, Jews and Gentiles and all brought together. And what's going to be fascinating is in the list of people that's about to come, these prophets and teachers, uh, we're going to see that very international mix, that very sort of cosmopolitan mix of people in this list. One other note before we look at the list is just the phrase prophets and teachers. Now there were prophets and teachers in Antioch. And Uh, Prophets and teachers really describe the leaders in the church at Antioch based on their ministry function more so than sort of like their title. They were prophets. Prophets primarily were proclaimers, one who would proclaim the word of God. Sometimes that included uh, telling the future. And teachers. Teachers were explainers. They tended to be ones who explained the teaching of Jesus, told the stories of Jesus, helped people see and hear and understand the teachings of Jesus. So the leaders in Antioch were prophets and teachers. And with that then, Luke lists off these leaders. And there's five names he mentions. Barnabas, whom we've already met, and he's played several significant roles in the story of Acts so far, and his significance is going to continue in what follows. Barnabas is a priest, if you remember that from Acts chapter 4. He's originally from the island of Cyprus. That'll be important in what follows. And he has deep connections to the Jerusalem church. So Barnabas. Next, Luke mentions Simeon, who was called Niger. Uh, That description of him, Niger, is the Latin word for black indicating that Simeon was a dark-skinned person of color, right? He was a a black man, probably from someplace in northern Africa, who has arrived at some point in his history in Antioch. Um, And so Simeon. We have Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is a country in North Africa, and so Lucius likewise is uh, from North Africa as well. Menaean. And notice the significance of Menaean. He has high social status. Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch is Herod Antipas. We meet him in the Gospels. He's the son of Herod the Great by Herod the Great's fourth wife. He was the one who had John the Baptist killed. Well, Menaean was brought up with him. And that idea of being brought up with is... An unusual word, but it means to grow up with, to be raised with, to be educated with. And so in some sense, Menaean grew up with Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, almost like a foster brother. So he has political connections, high social standing, and here he is in Antioch now as a key leader in the church that was there. And then the last one to be mentioned is Saul himself. And so Barnabas and Saul book in the list. And in between, we have three other people who are from a whole host of different backgrounds. Um, Saul being a conservative, devout, Pharisaic Jew. Menaean being brought up in the Herod family with Herod the Tetrarch and high social standing and political connections. Two people, probably both from um, Africa, one who's clearly described as having dark skin, Barnabas, a priest from uh, Cyprus and has close connections with Jerusalem. So we've got, a again, this mixed bag of leadership, which is apropos since the church there was also a mixed church. 
Luke then goes on in verse 2 and describes what happens. He, he lists off the leaders and says this in verse 2. He says, while they were serving the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, hold on to that for a second. Notice two things. This group of leaders is serving the Lord. The word translated serving here is liturgos in Greek. It's the word we get our English word liturgy from. It doesn't mean they were going about the liturgy per se. The word was used in, for example, the Greek Old Testament to describe the work and the activities of the priests in the temple or the tabernacle. And so they're busy about the work of the Lord. They're serving the Lord and notice fasting. Part of their service to the Lord included times of fasting and praying and all that. Well, in this moment, they're in a season of fasting as part of their service and worship to the Lord. And obviously, we don't know the details of their fasting. We don't know how often they did it and how much of a part of it uh, their, their leadership it was. But the way it's written here speaks of a regular part of their leadership. This was not a, an optional thing or an occasional thing. It was a regular thing. And what's interesting is that in the uh, Didache, which is a collection of teachings from the early church, the churches that were kind of overseen by this collection of teachings, the Didache, says they practiced fasting twice a week, that they fasted on Wednesdays and they fasted on Fridays regularly to remember their Lord, to remember his betrayal, to remember his crucifixion as a way to seek the Lord. And so we know throughout the history of the early church that fasting was a significant part of their, their worship experience, their following of Jesus, and their serving of Jesus. And that's certainly true of these leaders here in Antioch. So they're serving the Lord and they're fasting. And in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit has a message for them. The Holy Spirit speaks clearly and directly to them, perhaps through one of them who was prophets, right? Like they, the Spirit spoke very clearly and said this, set Barnabas and Saul apart for me for the work to which I have called them. And so the Spirit makes it clear that he's got a mission, a job for Barnabas and Saul to do. And so two of the leaders set them apart, consecrate them and dedicate them to me because I have work for them to do. I've called them to it. So they responded to the message from the Lord at verse three. Then when they had fasted some more, so they fast, they kept on fasting. They fasted some more. They prayed and they laid their hands on them and they sent them away and sent them out to the work that the Lord had called them to. And so they get this very clear message from God to set apart Saul and Barnabas. They pray, they fast, and they lay their hands on them. Laying the hands on in this context or others, means uh, to kind of officially commission and to bestow authority and responsibility upon. And so this is their way of setting them apart. They're officially designating them for whatever work it is that the Lord has for them. And though the message as summarized by Luke here doesn't tell us what that is, they clearly had a clear sense. It's to send them out, to send them away. Um, as we'll see in verse 4, they actually describe it here as being sent out by the Spirit. So the Spirit had uh, a sending mission for them to send them out to do work. Now, let me just make a couple observations before we see where they went and what happened. This is really the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys. And 
the first observation is this. What we now call Paul's missionary journeys, this is going to be the first one, that work was God's idea. God's the one through his spirit who spoke very plainly that it was the work he had called them to do. Didn't grow out of a gospel strategy session or anything like that. Again, not that those things are bad, but this was God's idea. He's the one that set the initiative for it. And we've seen this so far all throughout the book of Acts that at every major turn, God is the one initiating it. God is the one orchestrating it. God is the one carrying the work forward. And that's the way God's work is always carried forward best, is when leaders uh, seek the Lord and the Lord uh, sets the initiative and he opens the door. And that's what happens here. And closely then related to that is this divine calling, this calling to this work grew out of a time of prayer and fasting. In other words, these leaders were spiritual men. They were earnestly seeking the Lord. They, they weren't CEOs of some great gospel endeavor. They were first and foremost spiritual men. And that's what led to the expansion of the gospel. And it makes me think of this quote from Ian Bounds, a quote I've loved for years, where Ian Bounds says, We are constantly on a stretch, if not a strain, to devise new methods, new plans, new organizations to advance the church and secure enlargement for the gospel. But men are God's method. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men and better women. And that was written in the early 1900s by uh, Ian Bounds in a book on prayer. And I think that's very apropos here. These men, first and foremost, were men of prayer and fasting and seeking the Lord. And their service to the Lord grew out of that. And God, in that context, called them to this moment. And so, after they sent them out, verse 4 says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, it was his initiative, his leading, he's the one that said it. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed on to Cyprus. And this is the beginning of what we now call the first missionary journey. And we don't know the exact dates. We know when uh, chapter 12 of the book of Acts happened, that that was... Uh, that ended in 44, because that's when Herod died. We know that from secular history. So we know it's after 44, um, and based on other chronological factors in the, the book of Acts that we'll, we'll run into soon, we know it's before 50. So it's somewhere in that mid to late 40s is when this first missionary journey happened. We're 45 to 47, 46 to 48. That's typically when I put it, is 46 to 48. And the geographical focus of the first missionary journey is going to be on the island of Cyprus and Galatia. That's going to be the geographical focus of this first missionary trip, Cyprus and Galatia. And so they, they go down from Antioch to Seleucia. Seleucia was the harbor town near the mouth of the Orontes River, and it was the harbor city for the, the major city of Antioch. And so they go there, they board a ship, and they sail about 70, 75 miles from Seleucia to Cyprus. Why Cyprus? Well, remember, Barnabas is originally from there. And so he has connections there. It makes good sense to go there. It's close at hand. Let's go to Cyprus and exp expand the gospel there. We also know that there's already been some gospel work done there. 
we heard that in chapter 11, how they went there and they were speaking to Jews only. And so there's already been some seeds planted for the gospel. So let's go there. We've got connections. The ground has already been tilled. Let's go to Cyprus. And they do. They sail to Cyprus. And Cyprus is a significant island. It's the third largest island in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it's at its longest point, about 138 miles long, at its widest point, about 60 miles wide. It's got some major Roman cities on it. So it's a good place to go to, to expand and enlarge the territory of the gospel. So to Cyprus, they sail. And when they land, they land on the east eastern side of the island of Cyprus, and they reached Salamis. Salamis was the largest city on the island of Cyprus. Excavations have shown that there are were all sorts of uh, Greek and Roman features in the city. Again, gymnasiums, bathhouses, and theaters, and that sort of thing. So it's a large and prosperous city on the island. They reached there, and they began to preach, it says, the word of God in the synagogues. Notice the population of Jews in the city of uh, Salamis was big enough that there wasn't just one synagogue, there were synagogues. There were multiple synagogues of the Jews. Why begin the uh, preaching of the gospel in the synagogues, particularly for Paul, who was commissioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles? Why the synagogues? Well, several reasons. One is, Paul is emphatic when you read his letters that he is he's convinced that it should be to the Jew first and then to the Greek. He says that in several places in his letters. And that wasn't just like, kind of originally, and right, that was his strategy. That, that shaped his missionary endeavor. So to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. And so he starts in the synagogue for that reason. Not only that, um, there are God-fearers and Gentile proselytes that are part of the synagogues. And so again, it's another way to make connections that'll help create inroads into the greater Gentile world. And so pragmatically, it makes sense to go to the synagogue as well. Uh, as well as the fact that the Jews should be the most prepared people for uh, the gospel message. So start there. It gives them a ready audience, an opportunity to explain from the scriptures, and out of that, hopefully to uh, draw a kind of a core group of disciples and initial believers that he can teach and found and establish that can be kind of the beginnings of a church in town. So he starts in the synagogues of the Jews, and they preach the gospel in those synagogues. Luke then also notes that it's not just Saul and Barnabas that are uh, traveling and speaking. They have someone with them. They have John. This is John Mark, whom we met in the preceding story in chapter 12. Luke introduced him there for us. John Mark, who's originally from Jerusalem, whose family had been a key and early family in the Jerusalem church, a place where the church gathered in his home. This is who we have. John Mark, he's with them. And Again, this this is this makes sense. We learn from Colossians chapter four that John Mark is actually a relative of Barnabas. So they took Barnabas's younger relative along with them, and he's along as their helper, their assistant is the idea of the word translated helper. Helping in preaching, helping in other pragmatic affairs, who knows? He's he's along as sort of uh, a helper on the team. Now, verse 6 says, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos. So they start on the eastern side at Salamis. They preached there. They traveled through the island, presumably stopping at other towns and cities along the way, um, preaching Jesus. And they went all the way across to the western side of the island as far as Paphos. Paphos is 
the major city on the western side, the primary port city on that side of the island, and it's also the Roman provincial capital on the city. So they travel all the way across the island to Paphos. And when they arrive there, they they run into, in the course of their ministry, a magician who Luke describes as a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. This, in some ways, reminds us of Simon the Magician that we met in Acts chapter 8 in the city of Samaria. Well, this is the same sort of thing. He Notice he's, uh, by heritage and culture, he's a Jew. Uh, Luke describes him as a false prophet, so that in his, his work as a magician, perhaps he's fortune-telling and saying things about the future, getting some of it right, maybe getting some of it wrong, and hence, by Jewish standards, he's a false prophet. He is a magician, and magicians are those who were viewed as having, you know, this secret knowledge of spiritual names and powers and chants and incantations that they could manipulate the spiritual forces so that they would do uh, what you wanted done. And, And so they meet this magician, He's a Jewish false prophet. His name is Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus is his uh, Jewish name, his Hebrew name. It means son of Jesus, son of Joshua. So his his uh, family name, is, his dad's name is Jesus or Joshua. And he's the son of Joshua. And verse 7 says that he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. So the proconsul of the island, this is the Roman ruler of the island. His name is Sergius Paulus. And Bar-Jesus, the magician, sort of served as a court advisor, which was very common in the ancient world for uh, rulers to have wise men and magician and uh, people who could, you know, kind of predict the future or look at the stars or divine certain things, right? To have court advisors who had a supposed gift of a magic. And so Bar-Jesus is serving as a court advisor to the proconsul of the island, Sergius Paulus. Interestingly enough, Sergius Paulus is well established from secular history um, we there's been coins found on the island that actually use this very title for him, proconsul. Somebody actually questioned that that was the appropriate title for him, and we found coins that attest to that being the appropriate title. We his son. There's an inscription that was actually found in the very next place Paul and Barnabas are going to travel on this journey. More about that in our next recording, but that honored both his son, who had the same name as him, and mentions him as well. Uh, We know from an inscription in Rome during the time of Claudius's reign, which is when we're actually in the middle of that here, that prior to being the proconsul on the island of Cyprus, Sergius Paulus served in an official post in the city of Rome, kind of managing the flow of the Orontes rivers to to hopefully mitigate flooding. So he's he's been well-connected for a long time. And his family is well-connected. There's been various positions of influence and power that he's had, his family has had. And he is now serving as the proconsul on the island of Cyprus. Luke describes him as a man of intelligence. Well, this man, Sergius Paulus, summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. He hears about their preaching and he wants to hear the message. And so the very Roman ruler of the island of Cyprus 
uh, invites Barnabas and Saul to hear the message of God. But Elymas the magician, this is Bar-Jesus with another name, so for so his name is translated. We don't know exactly the origin of the word Elymas, but it seems like it has something to do with being a wise man or being a magician. And so it's not Bar-Jesus translated. It's sort of his, maybe his first name or more likely his title, his role um, as a magician. So Elymas the magician was opposing them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And so they're preaching Jesus to the proconsul. The magician Elymas is actually opposing them, interrupting them, saying the opposite of them, right? And trying to keep the proconsul from hearing the message and coming to faith in Jesus. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared at him and said, You are full of deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Will you not stop making crooked the straight ways of the Lord? And so Paul confronts Elymas, who's opposing them. And a couple of significant things uh, happen here. Some transitions happen. It's always been Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. But in this moment, Saul is the one who speaks up. And he's the one that is uh, the, the chief speaker here and who opposes him. And from this point on, it's going to be not Barnabas and Saul, but it's going to be uh, Paul and Barnabas. And that's the second major change. Notice Saul, who was also known as Paul. This is where we learn that his other name was Paul, and it's from here on out, he's going to go by this name, and it's going to be him that's in the position of sort of primary speaker and influencer, Paul and Barnabas. Why does Paul have this uh, other name, Saul, Paul? Well, Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is likely his Latin name, and it wasn't uncommon for Roman citizens, such as Paul, to have uh, various names. And so his Hebrew name, Shaul, Saul, his Latin name, Paul, and probably had other family names as well. And we don't, we're never told those. And so part of it is just he's got these multiple names. Uh, the other part of it is uh, Paul is his Latin name. It's the name that would be more appropriate uh, with a Latin proconsul in a Greco-Roman context. And for the rest of Paul's ministry, Paul designates himself by this name, Paul. It's his Greek and Latin name. It's the name that makes sense in a Gentile context. And so just pragmatically, that makes sense um, over against Saul. And I think there may be, maybe even knowing Paul's mindset, there may even be another reason for it. Um, Shaul in Hebrew, Saul, means great one. Paulus means, has this idea of smallness in the original language. And Paul constantly thought of himself as low and small because of who he had been before he met Jesus. And he describes himself that way in several of his letters. And so perhaps that was part of it as well. So pragmatically, it made sense. And it also embodied Paul's new self-understanding as one saved by grace by the, the kindness and compassion of Jesus. So Saul, known as Paul, filled with the Spirit, speaks. 
and confronts Elmuth Magician and says, you are full of deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, which is a play on his name. His name is son of Jesus. That makes no sense. You are a son of the devil, not a son of Jesus. And so you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not stop making crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now, verse 11, Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who can lead him by the hand. And so immediately um, at the word of Paul, uh, Elymas, Bar-Jesus, is blinded, symbolizing really his state. You are, you are blind. You are in darkness. You don't know the way. You don't know the truth. You don't know the life. You're, you're obfuscating the clear and obvious ways of the Lord. And so now your very experience physically is going to be representative of your what's true about you spiritually speaking. You are blind. And so he's blinded and he has to go about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. And the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So this this act of power and by Paul convinces Sergius Paulus, and Sergius Paulus believes in Jesus and believes in the Lord because he's amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now, we have no further records about Sergius Paulus, either from secular history or biblical history. We have no further records about Elymas from secular history or biblical history. So we don't know what happens after this point, but Luke tells us that Sergius Paulus believed and that Elymas went about blind. And what we see here is that uh, as Paul and Barnabas begin their missionary work. We see the power of God at work in them, and God overpowers a Jewish magician, leading a proconsul to faith in him. Hey, it's John. Thanks for tuning in to the listener's commentary here on the book of Acts. The listener's commentary is a crowdfunded Bible teaching effort made possible by the generosity of a whole team of supporters. And I wanted to share just one example of the kind of impact it's having. I get emails from a pastor in Kenya who's using the listener's commentary to help deepen his ministry and prepare his sermons because he doesn't have access to traditional libraries and books and resources like that. And so he can use these resources to help dig into the scriptures and then teach his people. And that's our dream is to provide these kind of in-depth, clear, uh, helpful Bible teaching to thousands and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people if possible, should the Lord will it. And so to those of you who make this ministry possible by your faithful and generous support, thanks a ton. You're making a difference in the lives of thousands of people all around the world. May God bless you for it.